Well, good morning and welcome. If you're visiting with UCC, we may never see you ever again, but thanks so much for joining us. That was probably a little bit more true of an experience for parents going to church than many of us would care to admit. Um, This morning, we're going to continue on a series that we started off several weeks ago looking at the Ten, so the Ten Commandments, right? And the idea behind the Ten Commandments is, is to look at the foundation of God's revelation to humanity. Remember, as we've been walking through each of these, we've seen that in each of these commandments, God is revealing something about himself, but also part of his creation as well, too. And remember, as we said to you before, right, every commandment has a opposite to it, right? So when we get to the commandments of you should do this, the, um, the opposite of it, you shouldn't do this. Or if the commandment is do this, the opposite is don't do this, right? And so the commandments are not just simply like these rules that have been handed down to us. And I hope you are seeing as well, too, or in your having this conversation, is that a lot of these commandments have been interpreted through a cultural grid. And because of that, we've kind of missed a little bit about what God is intending for us. And so we're going to continue on with this morning, but let's just recap what we talked about last week. Last week was this idea of the Sabbath, right? We talked about this commandment, and this is the fourth commandment saying, you know, you should honor the Sabbath. Now, we talked about this last week, and what really we need to understand is that Sabbath isn't the things that we think about, right? So remember I said to you last week that Sabbath is not rest right? Having a nap is not Sabbath. Going on vacation is not Sabbath, right? Sabbath was meant to clear our calendars so that we could focus on God, right? That's what Sabbath was for. This is why God says, don't do anything else on this day so that you can focus in on me. And if you don't do this, if if you don't focus in on me, you won't do it uh, um, elsewhere in your life. What we find is our lives are preoccupied. We're very busy, right? I remember we talked about that last week. I asked the question, how many of you are busy? And I think like ever like, some of you put two hands up and if you could do that in the worship service, that'd be better, but not for that part there, right? So the idea is that, are we busy? We are busy, right? And the thing is though, is that every time we say yes to something, we are also saying no to something else. And every time we occupy our schedules, we are saying, this is the less amount of time I have. And if you're a parent, or if you're a student, if you have a full-time job, it doesn't matter what it is, right? We are busy. What the Sabbath was meant to do, what it was meant to be, uh, this idea was uh, a moment of time to focus on God. But we also looked at was how radical of a concept the Sabbath was as well, right? We looked at this uh, quote from Rabbi Rifet Sonsino. It says this, the Sabbath is one of Judaism's greatest gifts to humanity. People in the ancient Near East had nothing similar to the Jewish concept of a weekly sacred day of rest. Other cultures in the past knew of a seven-day week based on the phases of the moon, but the Israelite Sabbath is not connected to the movements of celestial bodies. Remember we talked about this last week? Sabbath wasn't just for the rich people. It wasn't just for the Jewish people. It was for everyone. Remember the Bible says slaves and animals and, and everyone, like visitors, aliens to the country. It's for everyone. And what Sabbath does is it, is it gives to each person this moment of dignity, this moment of saying, you know what? Our creator believes that his creation should have moments of reflection, moments of rest. And whether you are Jewish or not, whether you are, are, are a slave or not, whatever your occupation in life is, you deserve this, right? Sabbath was not simply to say, hey, I'm going to have a rest. I'm going to do nothing for the day. It's no, I need to focus in on God in this time. And we talked a little bit about how the implications of that would be that you could really have Sabbath almost every day. If you're clearing part of your schedule or clearing part of your day to say, you know what, I'm going to take this time to pray, to journal, to meditate on scripture, to, to think about God, that, that that could be Sabbath as well. 
And we wrapped up looking at this passage from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found have fallen short of it, right? This idea of rest. Remember, rest is not nap time. As I mentioned last week, right, we have a puppy, and this puppy is ruining my nap schedule. I got to say to you, right, like, I, like if, if, if no one else is around, I have to take care of the puppy. And the puppy is needing to be puppy trained, which means need to be potty trained, which means he has to be trained that our carpet is not where they, they have any accidents, right? And so this puppy is ruining my nap time, right? And so what we have to remember is that the puppy is not ruining my Sabbath time. It's ruining my nap time. And again, these are separate concepts. So that's what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to jump into what may be the most controversial of all Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments, as we walk through them, you'll see like, oh, okay, yeah, I get that one. Oh, yeah, okay, this makes sense. This one this morning is going to be the one that I have to kind of, I have to explain to you the reason it is in the commandments. Because for many people today, this commandment brings up uh, a lot of pain of the past. And as soon as we talk about it, you're going to be like, why did God put this in there? Because as far as commandments go, it doesn't seem like that important of a one. But there's actually a reason for it, and we're going to kind of unpack it. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 20. But as, you, as I've said each time that we're going to start here, but we have to leap off into it. And the next commandment we're going to be looking at, commandment number five is, honor, oh, sorry, I'm, Spoiler alert, I'm jumping a little bit ahead here. One of the things that we need to talk about when it comes to the commandments is that the commandments were given to Israel when they were, in, uh, where they were on their way from Egypt to Israel. And what God was trying to do to the people was to give them a new way of understanding the world. The commandments were the foundation of this new society, right? So the commandments are the building blocks for a new type of society. As Israel will eventually start a new nation, this nation will be founded upon principles that will transcend humanity. Remember we said, we said this last week? There's stairs, you have to be careful. Remember we said this last week that um, the Sabbath would not be created by human beings, right? Sabbath would not be, be created by other human beings. If you own a slave and you gave them a day off, you lose money, right? Culture does not do that. Only God does that right? So these rules for this new nation will transcend humanity. And so as God sends them to, the, to this, the promised land, Israel, he's going to say to them, listen, as you go there, this is how I want you to govern. This is how I want you to lead. This is how I want you to run the culture. The fifth commandment begins that society. Now, Exodus chapter 20 says this, honor your father and your mother, then you will live a long life, full life in the land that you, the Lord your God has given you. This commandment is unique in that it has a command and a blessing. Remember we talked about this, that whenever you read scripture, whenever you see something that's not the same as everything else, one of these things, not like the other, kind of stop there and going, hmm, why? Why does God do something different in this one where he has a kind of a pattern? That's what we need to unpack with this commandment, right? Because this commandment is, as I said to you before, being a parent, being a child is difficult, and to be honest with you, I don't know any perfect parents, but I also don't know any perfect children. And this commandment can bring up a lot of, um, a lot of past, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. Because there are parents who act and behave in certain ways. There's children who act and behave in certain ways. And so we look at this commandment. And, and, you know, when you think about a building block for a new society, a new world, right, the one we're going to get to eventually is, you know, Thou shalt not kill. That seems like a good one, 
right? Thou shalt not steal. That's a good one too. Honor your mother and your father. It doesn't feel like it should be in there because it doesn't feel that serious, right? It doesn't feel like it has this, like what does this have to do with a new world that we need to live in? But yet God put it in here for a reason. So this commandment begins the idea of shifting now, right? The first four commandments, um, the first four commandments define how God wants us to show love for him, right? God gives us this commandment because he designed the world in a specific way and he wants it to function in a certain way. The fifth commandment starts the shift from the first four commandments are all about God, our relationship with God, right? Don't have any idols, right? Don't like, like God gives us these commandments, but these are our relationship to him. And we go, okay, the fifth commandment is all of a sudden now shifting to human relationships. And human relationships always become more complex. Um, Mike Bennett says it this way. The first four commandments define how God wants us to show love for him. This fifth commandment begins a series of six commandments that show us how to love other people, starting from our earliest years in the family. Uh, Mike Caps is this. The fifth commandment is about the flow of human relationships, and the home is the key to all the relationships. So what's interesting about the fifth commandment is however you understand it, however you want to wrestle with it, how much you may not like it. The fifth commandment is, in, is, is where it is in the order of the commandments because God is trying to show something, right? That however you look at a, at a country, a look at a nation, it first starts off at home. And this is a concept that is becoming more and more aware in, in our culture today. That when, we, when you look at the world around you and you look at what's going on, it's easy to say, what the heck is going on? Like, like how is this all happening? How is this taking place? Why is this going on? And what God would say to humanity, what God would say to our culture is that you have to remember that a nation is not a group of people that just kind of randomly walk around. A nation is really based on families. It's based upon this structure, this unit that is bent, meant to make democracy. And I was going to go down this tangent of looking at political writers have talked about how the family unit is the very building block, the very core of democracy. I'm not going to do that. Instead, we're going to talk about why does the Bible put it there and, and, and what is God intending for us to understand. But before we kind of do that, we have to kind of really ask ourselves, what is honor? Right? The Bible says to honor your parents. So how did the Hebrews understand this word? Because remember, at UCC, we talk about this. However we want to understand the Bible, however we understand Scripture, we must first place it in its Jewish context, right? Because first and foremost, this is being given to Jewish people. And how they understand this gives us an insight of how we are meant to understand this, right? Because it's cultural for them, but it's also part and, who, uh, part and parcel of who they are. So how do they understand this? Well, we have to look at the word first of all, right? The root of kabod literally means heavy or weighty. Now, this is not to say that your parents are fat, okay? So, you know, uh, they may be slightly, perhaps need a little more exercise, but the idea is that there's a weight to your parents. There's, there is this metaphoric idea of looking at it, right? The figurative meaning, however, is far more common. To give weight to someone, to honor someone, than is to give weight or grant a person a position of respect and even authority in one's life. And this is the key here, right? The weight of a person's opinion, the weight of the person's uh, place in your life is all about this idea of respect and authority. Now, understand something. You are automatically thinking about your own parents, and my own daughter is here thinking about me, her father, preaching this sermon to, about, you know, honoring your mother and your father, right? And, and so we have to ask ourselves is, you know, like, 
do these people even deserve honor? That's what you're thinking. That's what I'm thinking. I, I, I have to confess to you, I've been thinking about my own relationship with my parents growing up, and I gotta tell you, I did not do well with this one. I, I, I did not. But I, like maybe perhaps you, thought to myself, well, I can honor them if they were honorable. But they weren't. Or they weren't the way I wanted them to be. Therefore, I get to choose how I respond to them. And in that, I actually fell into the trap that God was trying to help me to avoid. Because what he was trying to say to us is there's something more going on here that you need to understand. Um, John Courage says this, the point is that a child must not take his or her parents lightly or think lightly of them. They must be regarded with a great seriousness and value. And that's kind of interesting, right? Because what, what honor is to the Jewish mindset is that this person in my life is going to be older than me, obviously, will have a little bit more life experience than me, obviously, but may not act or behave the way that I think they should. So how do I respond to that? How do I represent that in my life? goes on to say this. While honor is an internal attitude of respect, courtesy, and reverence, it should be accompanied by the appropriate attention or even obedience. Uh, honor without such action is incomplete. It is lip service. As a matter of fact, in, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah to the people, God talks about how they honor him. And the word that he uses is the same word he uses in the commandments. Look what he says. And so the Lord says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Now, I love this, uh, this idea because what God is saying here is you say you honor me, but you don't listen to me. You say you honor me, but you don't obey me. Right? Remember, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, was all about taking people's external behavior and connecting it with their internal beliefs. Right? Belief and behavior for Isaiah was so important. This is why in the book of Isaiah, God says to the people, you know what? I don't care about your worship services. I don't care about the sacred things that you do. If your heart's far from me, it means nothing. Right? Isaiah was all about connecting these two parts of our lives. Right? But he says the same thing about honor. He says, listen, honor isn't just about you saying, oh, you honor me. Right? And just so you know, this is still something that I think is still relevant for us today. We say that we, we think that God is important or special, or we, we give God parts of our lives. And say, okay, no, God's important. But we live like he doesn't actually exist. We live as if he doesn't really have anything for us to say or, or have a way for us to live. And so we say, oh, yeah, no, 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 God is important. Yeah, 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 God's important. But then we go out and we just live away however we want to. And it's like, well, if God was that important, don't you think he would have some sort of um, uh, change in how we live our lives? So honor is this idea of, of not just simply saying, yeah, I honor as far as a, a, a lip thing, but it's like, okay, there has to be more to it than that. And what's interesting is the opposite of honor is actually kind of interesting. So in one of the many examples of the genius of the Torah Hebrew, the opposite of honor is kalel. Remember, honor was kabod. The opposite of honor was kalel. The word is always translated to curse, but literally means to make light of, from the Hebrew kal, light. One curses one's parents, not only if one directs curses at them, but if one treats them lightly. So here's what's interesting. Cursing, and, and, and the biblical concept of cursing, is not just saying, hi, this is you, or, or saying bad things, or saying foul things. Cursing is like, you're unimportant. You mean nothing. You are irrelevant to my life. That is cursing. Now, we can say that that just seems mean, or why would you say that? But in the Hebrew, 
Cursing is to mean to make light of. Honor is to mean to give weight to. Right? And so when we talk about this idea here, what God is saying is you must honor your parents, but if you don't honor your parents, you actually begin to make light of them. Right? You begin to make light of who they are and what they are. And so the idea of honor in a, in a Hebrew context is very much about this idea of saying, okay, this person in your life, whatever they are, however they are, they deserve something more than just simply lip service. Now, here's what's interesting. The Bible does not say to love your parents. Now, I think this is interesting because the Bible does say other places, especially the commandments, to love. But in this particular commandment, the Bible does not use the word love, which you would think would be the appropriate word to use for parents. Instead, it says this. Given that the Torah does command love elsewhere, love your neighbor as yourself, love the stranger, love God with all your heart, the absence of the commandment to love our parents is obviously deliberate. The Torah recognizes that there are people who, for whatever reason, do not love their parents, and it does not command what it cannot be observed. Love and honor are two separate concepts. Now, the reason this is important is because you have to understand, um, I was a youth pastor for 20 plus years. And as a youth pastor, you deal with youth and you get the opportunity to kind of be part of their lives, but you also realize that some of these youth who are coming to your youth group, discipleship group, going on missions trips with you, they come from very dysfunctional homes. They come from homes that have a lot of chaos, a lot of uh, abuse. And of course, these kids who come to you and say, how do I reconcile this with my parents? And of course, as a youth pastor, like, oh, that's a great question. But the interesting thing is, the Bible does not say that you have to love your parents, right? Because when the Bible talks about that kind of a love, it's a, it's a, it's a reciprocity. It's a back and forth, right? But what the Bible does say about your parents is that you have to honor them, right? Not love them, but honor them. Because here's the reason why. This commandment assumes that parents act honorable and dishonorable. See, one of the things that's interesting about this commandment is we assume that in this commandment, uh, God assumes that the parents act are perfect. And anybody who's a parent here will put their hands up and think, I'm not perfect. I remember when this little lizard came home, I don't know what to do with it, right? Uh, I don't know, right? It just pooped and peed and, and that was all there was to it, right? It didn't seem to sleep at all. I, whatever battery this child has, I want in my own life because apparently they can get on with like a couple hours of sleep and, and you know, be able to do anything, right? So parents were like, we try to do our best, and, you know, it's so interesting, like, when you talk to parents, like, I read all the books, and, and, I, and I saw these documentaries and, and all this, but then you get this actual child, and you're like, ah, this thing does not obey the rules of, of physics even, I don't think, you know? Like, like I, don't, I, I don't know what to do with this, right? And so every parent has this, this fear of kind of like, ah, you know? This is why whenever I do uh, premarital counseling, I always talk about birth order. Birth order is really kind of important, actually, about in regards to relationships, right? So oldest child, right? If you're the oldest child here, how many people are oldest child? Put your hands up. Okay. So if you're oldest child, you are the rule keeper. You know why? Because you're the first experiment your parents had, right? So you came home from the hospital, your parents are like, ah, okay, let's do the rules, all right? Feeding time, right? So you were the person that, that your parents were your first experiment, and whether they got it right or wrong is, is, is irrelevant. But what they impressed upon you more than anything are rules. This is what we're supposed to do. This is bedtime. This is nap time. This is, this is it. This is that, right? So rules, because without, without understanding what to do, rules are, are how we kind of 
understand how we have relationships, right? Rules are how we do it. How many of you are middle children? So middle children, you are perfect. You are the, uh, you are the bridge between the youngest child and the oldest child. You are the peacekeepers, right? Because here's your problem, and not your problem, but here's your benefit. After the parents had the first one, the second one comes along like, okay, we didn't, we didn't kill the first one, so we can lighten up a little bit here, right? And you get to go, oh, okay, okay, I get to, I get to you know, and, and then you have that, but here is the uh, curse of the, of the middle child. How many of you are youngest child, children here? I'm going to put my hand up for this one. Youngest children, which I am one, so I'm about to say what youngest children has applied to me, um, you are brats. Okay? You could not outthink the oldest. You could not outgovern the middle. So all you had was volume. And, and at this point in time, though, the parents are like so sick and tired of kids. They're like, okay, oldest child, take care of the youngest child because I've had enough. All right? Uh, mama go needs to go out, have uh, some time with her friends, or dad needs to. Right? So, youngest children, you use volume. Now, what's interesting about this, though, is it's also how we interact with the world. Right, so what's interesting is corporations and, and HR people um, and people who do hiring, they're actually starting to think about this. When you hire somebody, birth order actually becomes kind of important because it's how you understand the world and how you interact with the world. So, for example, oldest children, you are great. Well, I don't know if you're great bosses, but if a company really wants to enact rules and this is how it should be done, oldest children are great for this right? Middle children, you are fantastic diplomats. You get to go into a company and say, okay, there's a lot of tensions here. So, yeah, so middle children come in and go, okay, everyone, let's, have, let's all calm down. Let's, have, let's, let's get along here, right? Youngest children, I don't know what we're good for. I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure in the whole uh, corporate structure. But the point is simply this, right? The Bible assumes that family relationships can be dysfunctional, and if the Bible assumes that family relationships can be dysfunctional, why does he put this command in there? You know the problem with writing this sermon was? Is I'm having to try to justify this commandment and what doesn't seem any reason why this commandment should be there. But yet as I began to delve deep into this commandment, I began to realize what God was trying to do. Let me help you understand something here. So the Bible assumes that parents behave badly. And just so you know, we have plenty of examples in the scriptures of this. And I'm only putting three up here because I could literally go through almost every book of the Bible and show you how parents in the Bible do not do a good job. Okay? They don't do a good job. Right? I, I love 1 Kings, right? 1-6. One, one like, what does David do? Now, his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, why are you doing that? You know who they're referring to? Absalom. And how'd that work out for David. Fantastic. Absalom takes over and David's fleeing for his life, right? This is Absalom, whom David never disciplined. Look at this bottom one. Uh, look at the first Samuel one, right? Now, the sons of Eli, now Eli was a priest at the time, were scoundrels, right? It doesn't matter what language is in, scoundrels is not a good thing, right? Who had no respect for the Lord. Now, Eli was very old, but he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. He was a priest. He was meant to govern and help the people lead. He knew his kids were going, were, were, were going crazy, and he did nothing about it. And what happened to his children? They became toasted Oreos before God. Remember, Eli's sons go before God, offer a strange fire, and fire comes up from the presence of the Lord and burns them to death. That's the story of Eli's kids. right? How about Manasseh? Right, the tribe of Manasseh. 
Manasseh also sacrificed his own son in the fire. He practiced sorcery and divination, and he consulted with the mediums and psychics. He, died, he did much what was evil in the Lord's sight, arousing his anger. Imagine being Manasseh's second son or daughter or, 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 or even grandchild. Hey, do you want to go visit grandpa? No, I'm okay with that. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just play with the goats. I'm okay. I don't want to go. I don't want to see grandpa because he's nuts, right? So, like, the Bible assumes here that parents don't act properly, okay? So the commandment's still in the Bible, but it assumes that the people, parents, who are supposed to be these honorable people, don't always act honorably. But now let's flip this coin here for a second, and let's talk about the children. Because children get to do what children do best, and that is act innocent, even though they're not, Okay? And this is not directed towards my child. Uh, I have the middle child here, so she's perfect, so that's fine. Uh, my other two children need to be here. They need to hear this more. No, I'm kidding. They all need to hear it, right? But the point is simply this. On the other side of this, we say, okay, parents need to act honorably. Yes, that, this is true. And every child goes, yes, my parents are terrible. They need to act honorably. But on the other side, too, is the child's part in this as well, too. Now, I'm going to show you something. I need to go off on this tangent a little bit because you need to understand what God's doing here, right? The classic verse for this is Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, right? And, and every parent knows, train up a child the way it should go and they shall not depart from it when they become old of age. You have to say it like that, right? If I was James Earl Jones, I would do it in that voice there. You get the idea, right? It's this, it's, this, it's this classic verse where people hear it, right? Now, one of the things you have to understand is Proverbs are not promises, Proverbs are not promises, and I'll explain that in a moment here, okay? Whatever you do, however you operate with your children, no matter what you do, they still have autonomy and free will. So Proverbs are not promises. Now, what does Proverbs 22, 6 say, right? It says, train up a child. But now watch this, okay? Proverbs 22, 6 begins with the Hebrew word hanak. This word appears in three other verses in the Old Testament. Interestingly, every other time this word is used, it is not translated train up. It is translated dedicate. It means to get something started or initiate something. So the first part of the proverb is about starting a child off in a certain direction or starting him on a path, right? So train up, it's this idea of like, oh, I need to train. Like, I just want to train. No, no, no. It's actually, when it's used in other places in the Bible, and it's only used four times, it's dedicate. At Uptown Community Church, we have uh, parent dedications. We don't dedicate the child. We dedicate the child, but we dedicate the child to the parents, Everything that we say on that time when the child is brought for us is for the parent. Because the child is just, I don't know what's going on. It's for the parents. Saying, hey, parents, this is what we ask of you as Uptown Community Church. And here's what you ask of us. We as a community will rally around you. We'll support you. We'll bring meals to you. Meals you may not like or want. Right? We are here to do that for you. Why? Because you're part of our community. You're raising this child up. And so here's, here is what we ask of you to do that. Right? That's what we do. Right? So it's... This concept comes from dedication. Not the child. The child's oblivious. That's why we don't baptize children either. For those of you who've been baptized as children, fine. I'm just saying this why we don't, because it, the child does not know what's going on. The parents do, right? And so the parents, the dedication is for the parents. But now let's go on here. Let's look what it says. Um, the word, Hebrew word for way, right? Ch- tramp a child in the way they should go, right? The Hebrew word for way appears 69 times in the book of Proverbs. It is used to describe both the way of wickedness and the way of righteousness. Essentially, it is a road or a path metaphor that simply describes a manner of life. So watch this, right? Hanak, right? We just looked at this, right? It's dedicate. Start the child off on the path. 
The second part of it, what path do you want to choose? What path do you want to choose? Right? I was talking to somebody at, um, on Wednesday at uh, Rave Hope, and I, I, I said to them that when I was growing up, one of my favorite books to read were Choose Your Own Adventures. Right? Because I liked how you'd always change. Right? Because once you read a book, it's, it's not going to change. Right? So a choose your own adventure is like, oh, if I choose this, oh, look, I'm dead. So you go back, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive the other way. So you get, you get to kind of have a little bit of a different way every time, right? Well, training up a child according to scriptures is choose your own adventure. Or really, if you really want me to get totally technical about it, choose your own destiny. Choose your own destiny. How do you want your child to, to kind of look at the future? Now, watch this. Um, this proverb could be a warning. It could warn me as a parent, if I allow my children to follow the way that seems right to them, I will have a hard time getting them off that path when they become adults. After all, the path that children are naturally inclined to follow is a path of foolishness that takes discipline to keep children from going down that path. The best path for training is modeling. A model for, model for the child the belief and behavior that you wish for them to walk in. Now, I have mentioned to you before, probably way too many times, that I was a youth pastor for 20 plus years. Here's what drove me crazy about being a youth pastor. Parents would come to me, uh, usually towards the beginning of the year, I'd never see them ever again after that, and they would drop their kids off, and you know, the first day of youth and all that, right? And it's kind of like the first day of school, but a little more nerdy. But uh, So they, they would drop their kids off at youth, and they would come up to me, and they'd see their you know, son or daughter going off and, and doing whatever, and they'd come up to me like, okay, pastor. I, I want you to really just, just preach the gospel to them because they need it. Like, I just, I just really want, I just, you just got to get them, you just got to, like, is there, like, is there a way of syringe you can just give Jesus, like, can you just force feed them Jesus because they just need it? And I was always like, yeah, well, you know, we do our best here. We'll try to, we'll try to, we can. No, 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 pastor. Uh, like, like, if I should be a 50, will you give them the real stuff? Like, I don't know what, what do I need to do here to make sure that my child really, I'm like, ah, okay, I get it, right? But what I really wanted to say to them and, you know, as I've mentioned before, there's things I think that I don't say. And for many of you who know me, you may find that surprising because I say a lot of really dumb things, right? But there's things I think but I never say. And the thing I'm thinking when I'm, I'm not saying at that moment in time is, you realize I only have your son and daughter for two hours of all the week. That whatever I teach them, share with them, tell them, you will undo by your behavior when, as soon as I get home. You get that, right? You got, you got that part of this that I get them for two hours, and I will do the best I can. And I used to run my youth program. It wasn't, it, it, we wanted to have fun. We had a good time, but it was really Bible teaching and, and discipleship and worship. We, we really wanted to kind of impress, I wanted to impress upon the youth these fundamental parts of what it meant to be a Christ follower. So my youth groups were intent, didn't tend to be more kind of like, hey, let's do really kind of dumb and crazy things, but it's like, hey, let me teach you to understand what the Bible is meant to be and how it is for you. But the thing, the problem with parents is they, is, is they took too lightly their everyday behavior to these children. They took too lightly the things they said at home and the things they did without realizing that the children will see that. See, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, it says this. So commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these words of mine. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your foreheads as a reminder. Teach them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on the gates so that as long as the sky remains above the earth, you and your children may flourish in the land the Lord swore to give you as ancestors. What is the, the writer saying here? What, what is Moses saying to the, the people of Israel? 
parents, you will be the primary spiritual formation for your children. However you view God is how they will view God. And you need to understand, more is caught than it is taught. What you make a priority, they will see as a priority. What you make not a priority, they will not see as priority. And I just want you to know, Gen Zers and millennials, and the second part of millennials, not the first part, we have seen, and we're talking about this as pastors, and the podcast that I did a couple of weeks ago in Winnipeg was all about this, right? Future Church, but... but We have have looked at the demographics of millennials and Gen Zers, and by millennials, I mean the second half of millennials. And that basically means like anybody from 28 under. We've seen that this generation growing up is the most secular generation we've ever seen in the church. This is the most biblically illiterate generation that's ever been in the church. And this is the generation that has so little tolerance for any kind of spiritual disciplines. Now, this is not to say we throw up our hands and say, okay, it's over. But it is to say the Gen Xers and boomers, we have done a terrible job. We have done a horrific job of conveying to our children the importance of what God is. And then we are surprised when they act as if God doesn't exist. We've taught them that by our behavior. We've taught them that by what we said, how we've behaved, how we act. Now, let me show you something here. Now, this is, this is free. This is on the DVD extra, extra, extra stuff here, okay? Um, there's been a lot of new studies that have been coming out about mental health of children. And what is interesting about mental health of children is that we are in a mental health crisis. If you talk to any university right now, they will tell you that their counseling, their mental health portions of their administration is overwhelmed. And if you're a university student, you may know this, that if you try to make an appointment with a counselor or something like that, they're telling you like two to three weeks ahead of time. Schools are, are, are doubling, tripling, quadrupling the counseling staff or, or, or trying to find a way of, of, of managing this because men, there's a mental health crisis right now within millennials and jet-setters. And I think there's a reason for that. Now, not to be overly simplistic in it, but more and more data has been coming out talking about how do we set our children up for mental health health. And one of the things that's been interesting is, is that um, the thing that's been overlooked the most is faith. So when we talk about mental health, and especially in the school and academic settings, we talk about affirmation, encouragement, we talk about self-esteem, we talk about these, and these are fine. These are great. We also talk about medication, we talk about, you know, this and, and all that. But one of the things that's interesting is that now as people are trying to kind of dig deeper into the data, what we are finding is something, something else is coming out. There's an article, uh, Global News, and I wanted to let you know the source. I didn't think it was Christianity Today or, or Faith Today or something like that. Right? Global News, right, is recognizing, and, and again, a Canadian source. Okay, good, got it. Right, the, the article is this. Religion can help improve children's mental health. New study finds. And so here's some of the things the study has said to us. Children who are raised with religious or spiritual beliefs tend to have a better mental health into their adulthood. A new study from the Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health found. I want you to see what school it was as well, too. It wasn't a Briarcrest or Trinity University or some spiritual base. This is, this is the TH Harvard. This, is, this school is all about policy and trying to figure out the best data outcomes here. And what, this is what they're saying. That they find that children who have a religious upbringing tend to have better mental health outcomes. Oh, wow, that's kind of surprising. Because I just thought church was irrelevant and, and useless when it comes to children. 
It goes on to say this. According to studies' findings, people who attend weekly religious... I wanted to highlight the weekly part, but you'll get the idea, right? Weekly religious services are prayed or meditated daily in their childhood reported greater life satisfaction in their 20s. People who grew up in a religious household also reported fewer symptoms of depression and lower rates of post-traumatic stress disorder. So what they have found is, is that religion and faith, and, and, and again, academics and scientists don't quite know how to quantify this part of it, but they're saying that if you indulge children on a consistent, that's the weekly part, the consistent religious upbringing, this insulates their emotions and their brains to understand how to navigate the world. This is a study from Harvard people, okay? Whatever you want to understand about this, you have to at least recognize and respect the data. And just so you know, I, I found about 30 of these studies. I just picked the Harvard one because I'll have everyone listen to that one, right? But, what, but no, watch, it gets better, okay? Because they go on to say this. According to Dr. Tyler J. Vanderweel, uh, the study's senior author and professor of epidemiology, at the Harvard T.H. School Chan of Public Health, attending religious services like church, for example, may benefit youth because it's shared experience with people who hold similar beliefs and values. Community is thought to be beneficial to well-being. Huh. Would you look at that? It just took us a couple of thousand years to figure out what the Jewish people understood back in the desert. Uh, the experience of God may fundamentally make a person more other-oriented, leading to greater volunteering, forgiveness, and a sense of mission. And these things ultimately make one happier and protect against depression. Now, one of the things that was in the study, and I didn't want to go too far on this tangent, and for those of you who know my teaching style, you know, he doesn't want to go on a tangent. That seems odd. Um, but one of the things they said was consistent spiritual attendance the I pop in every six weeks type of thing, or I come at Christmas and Easter, or I only go when it's bad weather, did not have the same results. As a matter of fact, they have found that inconsistent church attendance actually did more harm for the child. Here's what they found. is a child who doesn't have this as a discipline, as a formal practice in their life, that they're being dragged to a place they don't want to go because they haven't understand why it's there. And they haven't seen the importance of the parents. If the child, like, understand something. If a, if a child's showing up once every six weeks, it means the parents aren't showing up unless once every six weeks. And you got to drag and fight the child to come. And they're like, I don't want to. I want to sleep in. I want to play video games. I want to go on social media. I wanna, uh, uh, right? Why? Because the parents have showed the children that this is not important. One of the conversations I used to have the most at a previous church in town here was my son and daughter hasn't been out to youth for a, a little bit, and they're going to come out. They want to come out this week, and you know, we just want to let you know that. I'm like, oh, okay, great. We'd love to have them, of course. Um, I'm, and, of course, the question I always had was, well, why weren't they coming out to youth? And they said, well, you know, they had hockey. They had band practice. They had this. They had that. They had this. But now it's done, so now they can come to church. Oh, I see. So now that nothing else is going on, then you bring them out to youth. Caught, not taught. What's valuable? What's not valuable? What's valuable is academics and hockey and other things. Sure. But it's more valuable than youth. Now, please hear me very clearly. I'm a youth pastor by heart. So, of course, it's always yeah, rah-rah youth. But understand something. I see this all the time. 
You know, I see this all the time that parents are like, hey, we, our, our, our son or daughter doesn't really come to youth or we don't really come to church, but somehow I want them to grasp the whole, the, the breadth, the might, the majesty of God. Yeah, okay, I'll get right on that. So what we have found is, is the structure and order that God intended for the world isn't just for us. It's for all of society. Do you know what I was thinking about? So I grew up in, uh, I went to church in town here. And um, you may find this a hard thing to believe, but I wasn't a great kid. I was very, 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 very hyper. And I talked a lot. And I know that seems such a hard thing for you because I'm so withdrawn and quiet. So I, I understand. I understand your absolute shock on that. I get that, right? I went to a church where old people were allowed to discipline me. Then I'd be running through the church lobby, and this woman who had to be 400 years old, uh, you know, would say to me, you, stop running in church. Show God's respect for church. Okay, I will do that. I will stop going down because I don't want her to have a heart, a heart attack, first of all. And second of all, she freaks me out. Like, think Crypt Keeper, but, you know, better hair. You get the idea, right? But I was like, oh, okay. But I learned at a very young age that people who were older than me had, were, were worthy of respect. And that they were, she didn't say to me, hey, get out there and clean my car. You know, she said, no, in, in God's house. And you can argue whether it's the right thing to say to I get that. But I learned, I became a little more civilized as really what, really what amounted to a feral child, right? I became a little more civilized. Because I had people who were not biologically related to me helping me to understand what it meant to be a, a, a part of society. Older, younger, different backgrounds, right? You have to remember, we came to Canada, we were an immigrant family. And our integration into Can- Canadian culture was primarily through the church. Our school life, we, we did that as well too, but, right? but church was like, okay. And I got to realize that there's people in church older than me who got to say, hey, this is the behavior that we look at and this is the conduct we expect from you know, those of you who are gonna be younger. And I know as parents today, you're like horrified to think that another parent would discipline your child or, or, or whatever. I get that. And I get the abuses that could come from that as well, too. I absolutely I get that. But I want you to know I deserved everything I got, okay? I absolutely deserved everything I got because I was absolutely rambunctious. What the point is, though, and the point that God is trying to make with honor your mother and your father is it's not that they're honorable. It's not that they're perfect. But if you can't honor them, you will not honor God. Now, let me show you something here. Uh, Leah Bao said it this way, and I, I, I think she really kind of captures it. God has given authority to various offices within the structure of created order. And one of those offices is the office of a parent. The family was built into the fabric of creation from the beginning of Adam and Eve. The family structure not only provides for the population of the world, but is also for the good of children and society in general. Thus, the fifth commandment is crucial for us to study and understand because it relates to directly to how God has ordained and ordered this world. See, honoring your mother and your father is not about them. It's ultimately about God. If you can't honor your mother and your father, and I'm not telling you to love them, I'm not even telling you that you have to think that they're the best people ever. But if you can't do it for them, you will not be able to do it for God. And that rebellious part of you that always wants to assert your own authority, that will never go away. The reason this commandment starts the human relationship part of the commandments 
is because this is the primary one that you have to get together. And please hear me very clearly. I understand what you are thinking in your head right now. You don't know my mother. You don't know my father. You don't know, I, you don't know mine. But as I think back and I think about it now, whatever I thought of them, they probably didn't deserve it. And however I treated them, they probably didn't deserve that either. The honoring the mother and the father, the reason it's in the commandment, it's the gateway to understanding our relationship with God. And if you can't give that to, to the, your parents, and, and please hear me very clearly, I, I understand some parents can be alcoholics, drug addicts, and, and just worse, like, like the media tells us of the horribleness of, of how culture acts. I get that. But the Bible doesn't say you have to love them. The Bible doesn't have to say you have to obey everything they say. It's just saying to you that if you and your spirit can honor them, then you will understand how to honor God as well too. Two more slides. The fifth commandment exists in two tensions, parent and child. Both create society and both unmake God's kingdom. But in this case, the child learns authority's place in God's kingdom. Parents aren't perfect and neither is the child. If you honor the earthly, you are more able to honor the heavenly. And that's the point. Right? That's the point of this commandment. Is it's not about your parents, and I get it. Right? I get it. But if you can't have that a place in your life or that heart, I guarantee you will not have that with God. Guarantee it. And please hear me as well, too. As we try to say about your parents, I want you to know you're not perfect. I'm not perfect as children. We we aren't. And yet our imperfection doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to weigh into the conversation. Right? We get to make or unmake this world. And we start making it the way God intended it is when we honor our parents. Let me close here with uh, just a little reminder here as well, too, for parents. Because I know as parents, we do, I know that there's parents who have done the best they can with their children. And the children have still decided to be whatever they are. And I think the writer of Ezekiel kind of gives it to us in a great way. He says, the child will not be punished for the parent's sins, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. The righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and the wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. I think it's kind of an important thing to remember. That no matter what has happened in the past, you have to own your own decisions. You do. And I understand there's reasons. There, I get that, okay? And for 20 plus years, I've seen reasons. But at the end of the day, we will give account for our responses to those reasons. I remember one time uh, a youth in my youth group, um, his parents were alcoholics. And I don't mean like, oh, they like to party a lot. I mean like paychecks went missing. They went and they just, they just drank themselves. He worked 25 hours a week. I remember one time I asked him to be part of our, our youth leadership team. He said, I, Pastor, I would love to. Because I recognized in him something, this, this desire and love for God. He said, Pastor, I would love to, but I have to work. I'm like, yeah, I know you have to work. Everyone has to work. He said, no, 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 I have to work so I can eat. And I'm like, what? He's like, Pastor, I've never told you this. And, and the funny thing was, this kid was so, like he would worship and he would, like he'd be taking notes in my, during my sermons. Right, not that that's an indicator of spirituality, although I think it might be a good one. Um, he and so I just assumed that he came from a great home. I just assumed, 
Because I'm seeing this kid, and I'm seeing him worship. I'm seeing him, and I never saw his parents, right? He drove himself there and drove himself away. So I, I never met the parents. And that's not unusual as a youth pastor. But when he started telling me his home life, he started telling me what was going on. I was like, so I said to him, he's, I said, like, so how did you find us as a youth group? He goes, oh, a friend of mine uh, invited me out. Uh, <laughs> the friend didn't attend the youth group anymore, but he still did. And uh, he says, you know, I just, uh, I, I just have found a community here. I found a spiritual family that has kind of replaced my biological family because my biological family, and, and just so you know, his aunts and uncles, like this addiction, this alcoholic addiction, it was rampant in his family. He says, for many years, I didn't realize that I could have a spiritual family that could be equal to my biological family. And I didn't realize that one of the things that when we think about God, that God is my father. He says, because I don't really have a great father. And he says, like, I, I, I get that. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. I'm like, just come. Just, just come to church. You don't have to do anything well. Just, just come to youth group. And, like, I just made sure that I would see him. And he was such an encouragement to me. He really was. Not because of his past, not because of his context, but because of what he decided to do in spite of that. And, and when I think of Ezekiel's passage, I think of him. I think of his decision to say, you know what? I, I don't have a great home life. I, I never visited his home. I never visited him because he was slightly embarrassed about where he lived and slightly embarrassed about it. So I never wanted to place it upon him. But we'd, I, t- I took him out for lunch and meet him from school, whatever. So that, that was fine. But I, I, I got the sense where he was just like, you know what? <laughs> my background, my, 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 my lifestyle is just chaos. The thing that kind of stabilizes me, the thing that kind of helps me, and remember, go back to this study about uh, weekly attendance. He, by the way, he came to church on Sundays as well, too, at the church I attended, uh, I was pastor at. This is what helped navigate him through the world. So what we have to understand is that, yes, you can have reasons. I don't, and I don't mean to diminish, please, and be very clearly. I don't want to diminish anybody's past. But at some point in time, we have to decide what we want to do with that. The decision becomes ours. And Isaiah chapter 65, 17 you know why the Bible keeps using this idea of new creation? Because we've messed this one up so badly. Look, I'm creating new heavens and new earth, and no one will even think more about the, one, the old ones anymore. And, and in this chapter of Isaiah, he goes on to say, there'll be a new Jerusalem, there'll be a new creation. You know why we have to have a new creation? This one sucks. There's so much pain, there's so much heartache, there's much sorrow, there's so much violence, there's so much injustice. You just go, oh, I don't know how. I don't know what to do. It almost feels I feel helpless in this world. God's like, you know what? I'm going to make something new. And I think that newness could be here in this church, not this particular church, but in, in general, that we could be, we could remake this world. We could re-understand this, this idea of what family could look like. We could remake this idea of what 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 people, what the order of things is meant to be. See, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus kept talking about was to replace the kingdom of this earth. And the kingdoms of this earth can be very, very broken. But Jesus says to us, look, I'm going to make something new. Where, where the rule is love and justice and honor and integrity. And you may not find that in your biological family. And you may have to fight to find that in your spiritual family. But it, it can happen as well. Honor your mother and your father. Because if you honor your mother and your father, you will honor God. And if you honor God, then everything else kind of falls into place. Let's pray.
Invite the worship team to come on back up. If you're visiting us, we do worship kind of weird here. We, uh, we do worship like a bookend on either side of the sermon. And the reason we do so is because we realize that um, we want people to have opportunities to reflect, to think, to ponder, and to reflect about what was taught. The thing I want you to kind of maybe grasp hold of in this, this morning's teaching is the commandment, the fifth commandment to honor your parents isn't just simply about lip service, but it's realizing that they deserve something more. And not because they've earned it, not because they deserve it, but because God asks of it of you. Because if you can do it for them, then you will doubly be able to do it for God. Because one of the things that can happen within our households, within our lives, is our parents can disappoint us. Well, if we really are honest, God can disappoint us too. And not disappoint us because of what he does to us, but when we ask or we pray something and it doesn't work out the way we think it's going to work out. And we say to ourselves, well, God doesn't love me or my, my heavenly father doesn't care about me. And God's like, no, you just don't understand my plan for you. And the path that you're walking right now, I'm right with you. But you have to understand, sometimes it's good and sometimes it can be bad. You have to honor me in both. Likewise with your parents. And if you come from a background where there's lots of chaos, lots of pain, you need a special touch of the Holy Spirit just to be able to even come to that conclusion. And maybe if you're a parent here this morning and you said, I, I did everything right. At least I think I did. And they still turned out the way they did. You need to understand that God does not hold what their decisions are against you. Right? Ezekiel tells us that child and parent will stand before God. And the excuse will not be, my parents did this or my child did that. The excuse is, what did you do with that? That's the response God wants from us most. So this morning, as we take some time to worship and, and just to have that time of reflection, I want that to be your prayer, this, this opportunity to uh, think about that and reflect upon that. Heavenly Father, we invite your Holy Spirit now, and we just ask you to speak to our hearts and to our minds. Lord, I just pray first and foremost for those here this morning who may need some healing in their lives, who come from parents that perhaps acted dishonorably in, in ways we can't even imagine. Lord, I don't want to excuse behavior and I don't want to dismiss it, but I do want to say, Lord, that those individuals who experience that, they need healing this morning. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you just speak peace. You'd speak hope. You'd speak healing in these situations. God, for those of us who perhaps may need a, a, the opposite of that, maybe a little conviction, perhaps how we have thought about our parents, how we, perhaps we have been dishonorable, I pray, God, that we would Correct that within us. Because, Lord, if we can honor them, Lord, we can honor you. In the good times, the bad times, and the things that go right, things that go wrong, we can honor you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that that would be our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name.